church. Well, I have been very excited about today getting back to our study in the book of Acts. We've taken a few months, taken a few months away from this study uh, to do Advent together and to begin a new year, cast some vision for this year to talk through and teach through membership and discipleship and all those kinds of things. And today we get back into uh, the rhythm of studying through a book of the Bible. Uh, We believe that one of the best ways we can equip you as a follower of Jesus is to study our way through books of the Bible together. Uh, Our hope is that on every page we will see Christ um, and that we'll learn major themes and messages as a particular uh, passage of Scripture fits into the whole narrative of the Bible. So while studying the text we're going to look at today, Acts 17, my hope is that you discover Uh, Not only some truths about Jesus, but also some proper techniques of reading and studying the Bible generally. Um, We want to equip you with tools and the ability to read the Bible on your own and to know how to read, how to study, how to look at Scripture. And so we preach in a way and teach in a way that hopefully will guide you to that end. So if you have a Bible, why don't you take it and find your place in the book of Acts in chapter 17. And uh, this book was written by Luke. Uh, He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, but uh, to be read generally as well. His purpose in writing the Gospel was to prove that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Savior who came to rescue the world. And the book of Acts is to chronicle a history of how the church began And Jesus is doing and continuing to do the work that he started through his people, through the church. So uh, let's pick up where we left off. Let me give a a little recap um, just because it's been several months since we've been in the book. I want to kind of bring us all up to speed. So the Lord Jesus had been crucified, buried and resurrected. He spent 40 days about teaching his disciples and walking with them and Can you imagine listening to a resurrected man uh, who has walked through doors, who sat down and ate fish with you? Uh, You know, can you imagine the things that he would say and how attentive your mind and your ears and your eyes would be that every waking moment you just can't wait to be with this man again? Well, for 40 days, Jesus has been teaching his followers all about himself from the scriptures. And then his parting words to them is how the book of Acts begins in Acts 1. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses to all the world. It's a promise of power when the Holy Spirit would come and a command to go and tell people all over the place about him. So while saying these words, Jesus ascends into heaven. So think about uh, what would be the most exciting way to give one last command. I think maybe floating up into heaven while you give it would be a pretty exciting way of giving a command, right? So these guys remember this moment and this command. You will receive power and be my witnesses. That's the command. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is all about. It's all about this empowered witness. Everyday people empowered by the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary things for the name of Jesus. So... What happened? Well, not too many days later, the Holy Spirit came on them while they were praying and they were empowered to speak in languages they didn't know. They were worshiping and speaking in all these crazy languages. Meanwhile, people from all over the world had come to Jerusalem because of the festivals. And uh, 
So a crowd begins to gather because there's this, these languages being spoken. This large crowd comes together and Peter stands and preaches. He preaches to the crowd uh, the famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people repent of their sins and turn to Christ. It's, it's remarkable. And this was the beginning of a movement that is going to prove to be unstoppable at every turn. These early disciples, they were arrested, they were beaten, they were stoned, they were thrown in prison. And yet the mission and the the witness for Christ was unstoppable. Ultimately, Stephen would be stoned while he proclaimed Jesus as the Savior. And Saul, a man we're introduced to in that moment, was the one who gave consent. He was giving the go ahead for Stephen's murder. Well, Saul also, under his leadership, a great persecution arose. He wanted to he wanted to stomp out this Christian movement. He wanted to put it to a stop. Right. Uh, But it was a bit like kicking an anthill. It didn't stop the church. It just spread it. (laughs) So on his way to arrest and punish more followers, Jesus interrupted Saul on that mission, knocked him off his animal, blinded him. And Jesus took a very strong man made him weak and blind. But he did that so that Saul would become one of the greatest missionaries to the spiritually blind. So he was called Paul by other believers. He began his journey to spread the gospel, to make disciples of Jesus, to establish churches in every city that he went. And this movement that began in Jerusalem is now spreading rapidly all over the world, the known world of this time. The message of the gospel they're sharing is simply that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah had come, their king. And it was Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, buried, and rose again. But Jesus was not just a Jewish savior. He came for all people. So God began saving non-Jews with the same power and in the same way that he saved those at Pentecost. The gospel of King Jesus was spreading to all the people. The last chapter we looked at a couple months ago, we saw that Paul and Silas came to a city called Philippi. Uh, They they ran into three distinctly different people. We have stories of each of them. Lydia, a a businesswoman who uh, was wealthy and sold purple clothing. She came to faith in Christ at a prayer meeting. And then we see a slave girl who's delivered from demon possession and from slavery to her owners. And then we see Paul and Silas are arrested, thrown in prison, actually put in the dungeon and put in stocks. And while in prison, you'd think that they would they would cry out and be mad and angry. But no, they praise God. They worship. They sing praises. And those songs rise up to a Philippian jailer. He's amazed that in the midst of their suffering, they would be singing and Ultimately, that Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. The apostles are released. And they then go to a city called Thessalonica. Now, that was 16 chapters worth. Brief summary. Now we're in Acts 17. That's where we pick it up. They come to a city called Thessalonica. Will you stand with me as we read? Uh, If you are physically able to stand, um, we're going to read the whole chapter. It is a little bit lengthy, but I'll read quickly, all right? Here's the story as Luke tells us. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Well, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet 
He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of a man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. We receive it as such. Lord, teach us from it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we read this chapter, we have to notice the persistency and urgency of Paul's mission. Um, if you if you have the notes, I didn't put this in there, but I'd like for you to write this at the top of your notes. We need urgency with the gospel. One of the things you see is his, he's going from town to town. He's in Thessal- Thessalonica, then to Berea, then to Athens. And at every stop, the first thing he does is look for his in his opportunity to share the gospel. He arrives in Thessalonica and he makes a beeline for the synagogue. He reasons with them for three weekends in a row, three Sabbath days, until some Jews and a good number of Greeks and leading women, they believe. Well, upon their faith, the the Jews of the day became very jealous. There was an angry mob that develops. They're jealous over the momentum and the passion of this movement. It seems to be sweeping the crowd. Many people are believing in this guy named Paul and the, the gospel of Jesus that he preaches. So Paul is run out of the city secretly at night by his own friends. They're like, Paul, we got to get you out of here, man. And they send him out to a neighboring city. It'd be like going from Anniston to Oxford. that about that distance. And so Paul goes to Berea. What does he do there? Well, with urgency and an unstoppable persistence, he goes to a synagogue and begins preaching Christ from the scriptures. This guy is unfazed by opposition. He's on a mission. An angry mob can follow him, and they do. They stir up uh, dissension again. They stir up the city against Paul again. And so his brothers send him farther away this time. They send him all the way to the sea. They're like, you've got to go get on a boat and go somewhere else, man. You're causing trouble. So on his way, he comes to the city of Athens. Upon his arrival there, he walks into the city, and he sees and is broken. The scripture uses the word he's provoked. We'll talk about that in a minute. He's provoked by rampant idolatry. I wonder what Paul would see if he walked into our cities today. He's provoked by rampant idolatry. He begins talking about Jesus at first in the synagogues and then he goes immediately into the marketplace. I love that. 
because we notice that preaching Jesus isn't limited to a church building or a church place or a place of religion. It's the, the preaching of, of the gospel of Christ is meant for the world. So we go to where the world is. Oh, that we would be a people so enamored with Christ, so consumed by our Savior, that we would be urgent and persistent with telling others how they too can know Him and be saved. I want us to also just observe and acknowledge two things about Paul's message. He's very firm in his message, and yet he's very flexible. Here's what I mean by that. There's a firmness to Paul's message in that he's constantly pointing people to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the centerpiece of every sermon that Paul preaches. There's there's no other hope for people. I think back to when Peter and John were arrested after healing the man by the by the gate and they were arrested for working a miracle and then preaching and they were put on trial and the, the men who arrested them said, in, in what name and by what authority are you doing these things? And, and they said, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 412. I, I think about when um, Jesus fed the, the 5,000 people and uh, the disciples are, are there right after he feeds the multitudes. Jesus does a teaching. It's a real popular message. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. It didn't go very well. <laughs> the crowd dispersed. They all left him. And Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, to whom would we go? For you alone have the words of life. The truth that Paul knows is that there is no other message other than preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul is constantly, firmly ringing the same bell. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is the unchanging message of the gospel. And we must be firm with it as well. But there's also a flexibility to his approach. We see that he, he comes into Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue and he's dealing with a religious group of church people. And so he starts with the church language and he begins to talk about sin and the need for a suffering savior. This was revolutionary for them. They thought their, their hero was coming in on a horse and was going to conquer over Rome and be, the, be the, uh, the leader of their day and come in fighting like a warrior. Paul's teaching them, no, the Savior we've been looking for and waiting for is a suffering Savior. His name is Jesus. So he's flexible there. But then we see when he comes into the city of Athens, it's a city immersed in idolatry, not in religiosity. And so he doesn't begin his message with some kind of framework of of Christianese. He doesn't begin with um, the need for a savior necessarily. He starts at creation and it begins walking us from creation all the way through the biblical narrative until he gets to Christ. What we see is a flexibility and yet a firmness. Paul has has learned to be flexible with his starting point, no matter what conversation he gets in, no matter where this person is in their particular walk with the Lord, he's going to find a way to start there and lead the conversation to Jesus Christ. We must learn from Paul to be firm. 
And the message of hope we offer is Jesus. But where do you start in that conversation? It has to be flexible. We have to bend and move with, with where a person is in relationship to God. So I want to show us some things about Jesus from this text today. So if you have your notes, the first thing I want us to see about Jesus is Jesus is the suffering Savior. He is the suffering Savior. In verse 3, Paul told um, the Jews in Thessalonica that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. The part of that that was difficult for them to understand was the part about suffering. Why must Jesus suffer so much? Well, let me first say, because that's what um, was foretold through the Old Testament, that the, the, suffer, the Savior would come as a suffering Savior. We read uh, in Psalm 22, for example, about this prophetic description of a suffering Savior. And it, it, it talks about how his hands and his feet would be pierced. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before. Jesus would come. It even gives the detail of men casting lots for his clothing in Psalm 22. I mean, this is a ridiculous amount of detail. We see at the foot of Jesus' cross, those who nailed him to that cross are casting lots for this naked man's clothes. How, How could the psalmist know? How could he write? Well, the Holy Spirit knew and the Holy Spirit wrote. Isaiah 53, probably the clearest Prophecy about the suffering Savior shows that Christ would suffer according to the plan of God. The scripture says that it was the will of God to crush Jesus. And then it goes on to say, by his stripes, we are healed. It's through the suffering of Jesus that we are saved. So if you're taking some notes, you might want to know a few things. I'll just put together a short list. Why is it necessary For Christ to suffer first. Jesus suffers because it's the Father's will. Isaiah 53.10. The Father planned it that way and Jesus was all about obedience to the Father. Remember he prayed, Lord, if it's at all possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the cup of suffering that Jesus would drink was the will of the Father. Secondly, Jesus suffered so that we would be saved. Listen, Isaiah 53, 12, it says he bore the sin of many. (laughs) He had to suffer because our God is just and sin must be punished. Our God is also merciful. So here's the beauty of this truth is that Jesus received the justice and we receive the mercy. Isn't that good? It's beautiful truth. He suffered at the hands of men to put our depravity and evil on display. Here's what I mean. Jesus's brutal suffering shows what kind of evil we're capable of. Could you imagine Beating a man with a whip until the skin is totally removed from his body. I just, I personally can't fathom doing that. But then again, I have a hard time skinning a deer. So, you know, uh, but can you, can you imagine the, the, the brutality 
The callousness of a human heart to inflict that kind of pain on another human being. Can you imagine? Jesus suffered to show us just how evil we are and what we're really capable of. It reveals our deepest need for redemption. We are desperately depraved apart from God. And we need a Savior. And the suffering of our Savior shows us that. Lastly, He suffered as the first of many. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Because that's where I'm going. To follow Christ is to take the path of suffering. If you say what Jesus said and you love like he loved, the world will hate you like it hated him. We are not above our teacher. Jesus is the suffering Savior. Secondly, I love what uh, is said in Thessalonica. There's two accusations raised against these new these believers. Um, The accusations are they've turned the world upside down. Don't you love that? And then secondly, they say, they're saying there's another king, Jesus. So here's our second truth from this text. Jesus is the king of a new kingdom. Jesus is the king of a new kingdom. Now, the accusations raised against them is that they were insurrectionists, that they were trying to overthrow Caesar's rule. But our king is not like that. Our king instructs us to honor our earthly leaders, to submit to them as far as we are able and to honor our earthly leaders. They weren't opposed to Caesar. They were stirring up and raising up and building a kingdom that could operate whether he was in rule or not. These are the same reasons why Jesus was brought to Pilate, if you remember. They accused him of the very same things, stirring up an angry mob against Caesar. Remember even the sign that they mockingly hung above Jesus' head on the cross? What did it say? This is the what? King of the Jews. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't deny being a king. He just knew his kingdom wasn't earthly. The Christian movement is a movement of a kingdom. And we have a king. And that means we as Christians are under the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. We submit ourselves joyfully to him. But this movement is turning the world upside down. That accusation was true. And it's because it's flipping everything on its head. Jesus said some things like this. If you want to be first, be last. The greatest among you will be the least, the one who serves. Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus said, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. These are the kinds of things that show you that our king is not leading the same kind of economic ladder climbing system that we're accustomed to in this world. And so it's very true when they were accused of turning the world upside down. They are turning it upside down. It's a world that says, I'm going to love others first. I love Christ. I love God. And then I love others. This is a new way to live. And it's under the authority of a new king. And Jesus is that king. 
He is the ultimate authority over all rulers and all authorities. Do you know that? No matter who sits behind the resolute desk in the White House, he is but a footstool for our king. The prime minister, the queen of England, the supreme leader of China, and on and on and on and on and on. These are mere pawns on the chessboard of our king. You remember in Acts chapter 12 when King Herod thought he was somebody? He had James the Apostle killed. Then he put on his shiny robe and he stood before the crowd and he gave a great speech. And they said, oh, this is the voice of a God, not of man. And he didn't deflect that accolade. He received it as though he were God. And our king had had enough. And King Jesus said, okay, that's the end of your reign. Struck him with worms. King Herod was shiny on the outside and was eaten up on the inside. Because our king is in control. We should rest in this, church. No matter what authorities seem to be over us, we submit to a higher king, a greater king. Thirdly, Jesus is the hero of the scripture. I love how Paul goes from town to town. He starts in Thessalonica and then in Berea. And he's opening the scripture to them. And he's just preaching Jesus. Wherever he turns, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the the hero of the scriptures. And it reminds me of, of the end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24. Uh, I'd like to I'd like for us to look at this. So would you take your Bible really quickly? Uh, pull out your device if you're going to look at it on the device or maybe we'll put it on the screen. But Luke chapter 24 I want us to look at two specific verses where this is the resurrected Christ. The first one, uh, situation he's walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who are discouraged because they thought Jesus was the king. But then he died. And so they're walking down the road and Jesus shows up with them and he starts teaching them. And this is what he says in Luke 24, verse 27. Well, let's go back one verse because that picks up what Paul was preaching. Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then verse 27 And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Isn't that amazing that all the Bible is actually pointing us to Christ. And then later on, Jesus kind of barges in to a meeting of his disciples in the upper room. And they're they're talking about, hey, you know, we, we just heard that. Jesus showed up to these two guys on the road to Emmaus and then in walks Jesus and he's like, yeah, and I'm here too, guys. And he begins to teach his disciples and listen to what he says to them. Look in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen, church, when we read the scriptures, make no mistake, Jesus is the hero. In every text, David and Goliath, it's all about Jesus. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, it's about the coming Christ. It's, it's the incomplete, the, the not yet, and then here he is, the fulfillment of. All of it is that way. When we read this, the pages of this book, we should look for the hero of the scriptures. 
And when Paul comes into Thessalonica and to Berea, he's teaching them, he's showing them that Jesus is not some new divinity. No, he's the ancient of days who has come to rescue. That's who our God is. It's Jesus. All the Bible is working to tell the story of redemption. And Jesus is the hero. And many believed in Berea. I love what it says here. Um, Look with me back in Acts 17, if you will. In verse 11, it says, Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them believed. I I love what this teaches us. Um, These people are... Three words, um, stealing this from uh, another author about leadership, but it applies here. Three words. These people are humble, they're hungry, and they're smart. Here's what I mean. The Bible says with eagerness. So they have an appetite for truth. They're hungry for the truth. The Bible says they're looking to see if these things are so. There's this openness. There's a, a teachable spirit. I'm, I'm humble enough to say, you know, I may not have it all figured out. So let me examine this to see if this really is so. And then lastly, the examining. This takes work. It takes time digging into these pages. And so I say these people are smart. They're, they're willing to do the work to dig to explore for truth. And for you today, if you're exploring to see if Jesus really is who I'm telling you who he is, if, if Jesus really is who this word tells you he is, I, I'm not afraid of that exploration. I hope you dig deep. I hope your appetite is, is unquenchable and that you go searching after truth because I know at the end of the day, if you're seeking truth, guess what? You'll find Jesus because he said, I am the way, the truth. And the life. And these people are hungry, humble, and smart. And because of that, many of them believed. Well, Paul's run out of Berea also. He comes into the city of Athens, and there he sees idols everywhere. Everywhere you look, an idol, some symbol of false worship. So, fourthly, Jesus is the one true God. Who conquers our worst enemy, death. Jesus is the one true God who conquers our worst enemy, death. And where you see that most clearly is in verse 18. Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So think about it for a minute. Um, Every idol is meant to provide something for its worshiper. Think about it. The God of fertility... Is meant to meet the need of sex and childbearing. That's what that God is for. Like we worship that God so that we get this. The God of the harvest is a God that we worship this God so that we have a good crop this fall. The God of money, well, we worship that God so that our business is profitable and we're successful and we're able to buy a bigger house or a boat or whatever. That's That God, every God and so on and so on. Every one of these idols is meant to fuel and feed your own desire. 
In this particular city, they would have a God. It was uh, very polytheistic. They would have a God for everything. No matter what you wanted, there was a God for that need. And you would sacrifice to that God if you wanted what that God could give you. And so out of fear um, and nervousness that they might miss one of these many gods that could provide for them, they set up this idol to the unknown God. And it's to that God that um, Paul began his sermon. Before we get there, though, I want us to see that Paul is provoked about this idolatry. He's provoked over it. That's a weird word. We don't use it very often, but uh, it's the combination. It's like a collision of anger and love. And here's what I mean. Paul is angry about idolatry. Because God alone deserves the worship of these people. And it angers him that some other God, some little, some little something is receiving their praise and their worship when God alone deserves that worship. So it's anger and yet it is love. It's compassion for these people because they don't know the one true God. And so Paul is provoked within him. He's broken with compassion for a people that do not know the one true God. What a fuel for mission, right? It's, it's such a fuel for mission. I can tell you, I've been in some places in the world where my heart is incredibly broken. I remember in East Asia, walking through a temple where they have these, these like turnstile wheels that spin constantly. And there's chimes and things ringing and candles being lit. And, and the belief is that if the candles ever go out or if these things stop turning, then the gods will stop hearing our prayers. I remember this feeling of like, I want to walk through here and just stop every one of them, <laughs> you know, blow out all the candles. I just want people to know that all of this is emptiness. You're praying to something that's not hearing you. It's not real. So Paul is angered, he's provoked like that, and yet he's so compassionate. He's looking at these people who are just lost like sheep without a shepherd. So it fuels him to mission. So he begins to preach Jesus and the resurrection. Every idol is meant to give you something. So Paul confronts this desire by getting to our worst enemy, death, the thing we fear most, our greatest need. And he says that in Jesus, he is the God who meets them both. He is the God who grants you eternal life. He's the God that liberates you from a fear of death. Jesus resurrected from the dead. So Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So this stirs their interest, obviously, the, the people in Athens, he, he gains an audience with them. They're religiously curious. You know, we read at the end of that section, it says that they just loved gathering and talking about new things. You know, these are philosophers that like to hear a new idea, a new thought. So they're like, we want you to come to the Areopagus and, and tell us more about this. So Paul explains to them our fifth reality. And this is where uh, I want us to finish up today. Listen. Jesus is the God you've been looking for. That was the message that Paul preached when he came into this great amphitheater, this huge crowd of people. They've come to hear him teach. And this is if there was a title over his message, that's what it would be. Jesus is the God you've been looking for. 
He starts by saying, I perceive that you're a very religious people. You have a God for everything, he says. You're so nervous that you might make one of these gods mad. I even saw an idol with the inscription to the unknown God. Paul says, well, I know this God. And let me tell you about the God you've been looking for. This is how he begins talking about Jesus, our Lord. He says. All of this comes from verses 24 through 31. He says he is the creator. You need to know this about our God. He is the creator, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it. The scriptures tell us that he's the Lord. He owns it all. There's a kind of ownership that comes with creation that we know nothing about because our God made it all. He is creator. Paul says he has authority. The very next statement, being Lord of heaven and earth. Paul says he's Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 24, there's no authority greater than our God. There's no one greater than this God. So Paul, in essence, is saying all the little gods that you're looking to, there's none greater than this one. The one you've yet to know, he's the greatest of them all. He's made it all and he's Lord over it all. Then Paul says this, he's not served by human hands as though he need anything. Now think for a minute, if you're not familiar with like a Hindu or polytheistic culture, here's what happens. The, 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 the Hindu idols in particular have hands out like this. Did you know that? They have their hands out like this. And here's what happens. If you want to worship that God, you've got to come put some food in their hands because those gods need you to feed them. Now think about the logic of this. Paul says... Your God needs you to serve it. No, no, no. Not the God I'm telling you about. He doesn't need to be served by human hands. He is the giver of all things. So Paul says, Jesus, he is the giver in need of nothing. What Paul's saying here is look no further. You need to look no further. Jesus is already giving you life and breath and everything. Everything you have is from Him. It's not from these false gods. Paul goes on to say He is wise and He has a plan. Look at verse 26. He says He's having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 26. That this God has been um, orchestrating events all through history. That from one man, Adam, all people have come And all people have the same brokenness and God has been working to navigate every situation, giving every person their boundaries and their dwelling place that he's wise. He has a plan and he's in control. And then I love this next truth. This God, he is near. I don't know if you see that in verse 27, but Paul says, um, That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then he says, yet he is not far from each one of us. This God is not distant from you. He has actually come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, they named him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus left his disciples, he said, I'm telling you, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. 
And lo, I will be with you. Right? And Paul says to these people, this God, he is near. He's near. That should be comforting truth to us. Paul says he is patient. These next three I want you to hear together. He is patient with our past. Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked. Look at the verb tensing there. Times of ignorance were overlooked. What Paul is saying is that God has been patient for many years. And if you think about your life personally, isn't it a wonder that in the moment you you sin, in the moment you um, disobey and rebel against God, isn't it a wonder that he doesn't just strike you dead, right? It's because he's patient. He's long suffering. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And Paul's saying he is patient with our past. But then he says, but he commands us in our present. Paul makes he doesn't miss the opportunity to preach to this crowd and say he's been he's been patient. He's overlooked your ignorance. But now, you know who this God is and he's commanding everyone everywhere to repent. That's the message of the gospel It's to believe that this God is true and repent. Change your mind, change your mind about sin, about yourself and about your savior, that that you need him and that he's for you. God commands everyone, everywhere to repent. He commands us in our present. Yeah, he was patient with your past, but He is commanding you today to repent. And the third that you need to hear together is a warning. Paul says He will judge us in our future. Verse 31, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. And then just so you know who that man is, who is that judge? He says, and just to prove that it's going to happen, he rose him from the dead. He lives today because he will judge us one day. I don't know about you, but the idea of being judged in righteousness is a scary reality because I don't have any righteousness. I am not righteous and if I am judged on my merit, I am in trouble. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came to take on your sin. Remember Isaiah 53, 12 says he bore the sin of many. He took on your sin and he suffered in your place so that you could take on his righteousness. And so that in the day of judgment, you stand before almighty God and that judge is your father. And he's already sacrificed his son on your behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to trust in that gospel. Lastly, he offers mercy. Just the fact that Paul is preaching to these people, opening their eyes that these idols are worthless and there's a one true God who can meet their every need. That is merciful. So if you're under the sound of my voice today, you are receiving the mercy of God to hear this message that you can repent and believe and trust in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. God raised Jesus from the dead. He will come again one day to judge the living and the dead and all will be judged. But there's salvation in 
Jesus. Before he comes to judge, remember he came to save. On the day Paul preached this message, some people mocked. Some people waited. They said, you know, we want to hear you about this again. And some people believed and joined him. That will be the case today. Some will mock. What an idiot that guy is. He really believes that. Some will say, you know what? That sounds kind of good. I think I'd like to hear more. Some, God willing, will believe. Maybe you think this is all foolishness. Or maybe you think, you know, that's possible, but... I'm not really ready to surrender to Jesus today. I want you to know that's a soft rejection, but it's still a rejection. Maybe, though, you're in the room and he's calling you or you're listening online. And this is the first time you've heard the gospel like this. And you're you're thinking. What in the world? Like there's a God, there's a real God who came to save me and can rescue me from my sin and. He has suffered in your place. All you do is put faith in him. Trust in him. Believe and be saved. Repent of your sin. Look to Christ. Let me ring the bell. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be saved. Church, this is our message. This is the message of the gospel, right? And we're called just as these Christians, these early disciples are called to go with it. Let's be faithful with the message. Let's be faithful this week to share with those around us that we love so dear. Let's be provoked within for people putting their hope in all kinds of things that are not Christ. Let's be provoked enough and fueled for the glory of God and the good and joy of all peoples to share with them the message of Jesus Christ.